all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, my stellar explorers. Kyle here, your guide through the galaxy. And boy, do we have an interstellar treat for you today. Welcome to Star Wars Audio Archives, your passport to the furthest reaches of the Star Wars universe. In this thrilling age installment, we are diving headfirst into the uncharted sector of the High Republic. After the jaw-dropping revelations in Part 7, you bet we're in a hyperspace-level adventure, and I'm electrified as a droid with a brand new power cell. Are you geared up to unravel the mysteries of the Jedi and the dark forces they face? Buckle your safety belts, my cosmic companion, because we're about to make the jump to light speed and embark on an epic journey together and discover the secrets of Part 8 right now. Elfrona. And the vehicle shuddered. Bell heard Indira curse under her breath, but they didn't slow down. If anything, they moved faster, the engine's roar increasing in pitch. Ember stirred at Bell's side, anxious, and he stroked the hound's pelt, feeling the temperature variations across the creature's coloration. It's all right, girl, Bell said. Indira just bumped into something. We're fine. They were riding in another vehicle custom designed by Valkyrie Enterprises for the Jedi, a Vanguard, the land-based equivalent to the Vector. It was also sometimes called a V-Wheel, even though the thing didn't always use its wheels to get around. Every Jedi outpost had at least one as part of its standard kit, and the machine was engineered to operate in all of the many planetary environments in which those stations were situated. It could operate as a wheeled or tracked ground transport, or a repulsor lift speeder for ground too rugged for even tank treads. A Vanguard even had limited ability as an amphibious or even submersible vehicle, being able to seal itself off entirely as needed. It could do everything but fly, and that came in handy on Alfrona, where the planet's strong magnetic fields made certain regions utterly inhospitable to flying craft. The overall aesthetic was analogous to the vectors. Smooth, sleek lines with curves and straight edges integrated into an appealingly geometric whole. Behind the seats in the driver's cabin, currently occupied by Indira Stokes and Loden Greatstorm, was a large multi-purpose passenger area with space to store any gear that a mission might require. Vanguards were more rugged than vectors, but were built with many of the same Jedi-related features as their flying cousins. The weapons systems required a lightsaber key, and many of the controls were mechanical in nature, so as to be operated in an emergency via an application of the Force rather than through electronics. No Jedi would use the Force to accomplish something as easily done with their hand, but lives had been saved by the ability to unlock a Vanguard's hatch from a distance, or fire its weapons, or even make it move. Bell didn't think he could do it, and he wasn't sure Loden could either. Indira? Maybe. She was by far the most technologically minded of their crew. She usually drove whenever they took the machine out. Today was no exception. Indira had chosen the most discreet course to their destination, a straight shot through the landscape across a low-slung set of hills. A road did exist, running from the outpost to Ogden's Hope and looping back out to the claim zones, 
but it was an indirect route. Using it would take time they did not seem to have, based on the emergency message they'd received. So the ride was bumpy, uneven, but it was fast, especially with Indira at the controls. The vanguard crested the rise. Smook, Loden said. Vel turned to look through the vanguard's windscreen and saw what his master was referring to. A wide column of dark smoke, far ahead and in their path, revealed now that they were over the hills. If that's not the Blythe homestead, it's right next door. Do you think? Indira said. I do, Loden replied. When I heal from what I've heard and destroy us, they take what they want and wreck what's left. They use gas attacks too. That could be what we're seeing. Looks like a fire to me, Indira said. Take the wheel, Loden. I'm going to run out of veil. See if I can get a look at what we're heading into. And it gives us a chance at a multi-front response if the Nihil are still there. Or if they left any surprises, Loden said. Indira nodded. She got up from her seat as Loden grasped the control wheel. The vanguard slowed. Indira made her way back to the passenger compartment, moving past Porter Engel, who sat in silence, his single eye blank, staring at nothing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Outwardly, the Akraki was calm, but Bell sensed roiling energy in the man. Porter Engel, the kindly cook, inventor of ingenious dishes and dispenser of useful aphorisms, was being set aside. What was appearing in his place felt like a dormant volcano beginning to wake, simmering and ready, filled with unimaginable power. The ancient Jedi was summoning up a ghost, one of his former lives. A version of himself the Padawans told stories about. Someone the sort of people who attacked defenseless settler families should pray they never met. Are you all right, Porter? Bell said. Yes, the old Jedi answered without shifting his gaze. Bell decided to leave it alone. He wasn't afraid of Porter. They were both Jedi, after all. But he wasn't sure how he felt about meeting a ghost. Indira slipped past them to the rear of the vehicle, where its two veil speeders were stored on racks, one above the other. Like all the Valkyrie Enterprises gear built for the Order, they were designed for Force users, and as such were delicate, highly responsive machines. Little more than a seat, strapped to a hollow duralium frame, with a single repulsor and four wing-like attachments that sprang out from its sides. A veil was basically a flying stick. But if you knew how to ride them, they were incredibly fast and maneuverable. A group of skilled riders with lightsabers out and ready could take down entire platoons of armed vehicles while sending blaster fire back at their attackers. Veils were also incredibly fun. 
and Bell took one out to ride through the hills and valleys around the Elfrona outpost whenever Loden gave him a rare hour off. Indira lifted one of the veils off its rack, then kicked out at the switch that opened the vanguard's rear hatch. It flipped up, metal-scented air roaring into the compartment. Be careful, she said to Bell, and then Indira leapt out, the veil's wings flipping open as she did. He saw her catch the wheel and fled away, gone in a blink. Bell pulled the hatch closed. He got up and moved toward the front of the vanguard, passing Porter, who said nothing. He sat in the driver's seat, recently vacated by Indira. Ember lay between them, and Loden reached down to pat the creature's head without taking his eyes from what lay ahead. Through the windshield, the source of the smoke column was revealed as a burning two-story home, the centerpiece of what had once been a small, neat homestead, what looked like a mining operation. Odin slowed the vanguard to a stop a few hundred meters from the fire. He looked at Bell. Do you sense any survivors? Bell reached out with the force. Nothing. Cold emptiness. No, he said. Neither do I, his master said. But we need to check anyway. See if we are missing someone. Or if there are clues to what happened. We will find just us here. One way or the other. Loden opened the door on his side of the driver's cabin and stepped to the ground. Bell followed suit. Ember slipping down after him. Porter appeared a moment later. His hand resting lightly on the hilt of his holstered lightsaber. Bell realized he'd never seen the old man draw it. Not once. Loden lifted a comm link and spoke. We've arrived at the Blythe's claim, Indira. Looks like the Nihil burned the place. We're going to look around. Do you see anything? Nothing, Indira's voice replied. I'm on a rise about half a kilometer away. I can be there quickly if anything happens. I'll let you know if I see anyone coming. Good, Loden said and slipped the calm link back onto his belt. Let's go. But slowly. He took a few steps ahead toward the burning house. They passed a corral, where several terrified steelies rushed and stamped, their eyes huge, nostrils flaring. Porter lifted a hand. Easy, friends, he said, and the beasts calmed immediately, sinking to their haunches, huddling together in their pen. Wrecked speeder, Loden said, pointing to a smoldering pile of wreckage not far from the house. Bodies, too. And a bunch of mining droids, taken out by bluster fire. My guess is the family tried to use the droids to defend themselves. Didn't work, or not well enough. Porter called out from over at the Steely Corral, where he was squatting, peering closely at a patch of disturbed ground by its gate. The Nihil took some of the family's steelies when they lost their speeder. I can see the whole story right here in the dirt. Six people, four captives. He stood, and his face seemed cold enough to extinguish the fire. Two of them are kids. Bell looked more closely at the house. There was something on the door. It looked odd, like writing or... He stepped closer. 
The door to the Blythe's home had been marked by three jagged lines zigzagging from top to bottom. The edges were ragged, savage, as if carved by a vibroblade running low on charge. There's something here, he said, and took another step. The lines looked like lightning. Three jagged lightning strikes. The heat from the fire was intense, but the symbol was fascinating in some primal way. He moved closer, needing to see it as clearly as he could. Ember barked, a sound of sharp, unmistakable alarm. Bell stopped and turned to look at the charhound. What is it, girl? He said. And then he noticed why Ember was trying to warn him. Four trails of raised dirt moving toward him at incredible speed. Mole mines! Bill had time to think. And then he did two things. First, he pushed Ember with the force. He tried to be gentle, but the point was to shove her back out of harm's way. Whatever damage he did to her, it couldn't be as bad as getting caught in an explosion. Then, Bell leapt, straight up, unholstering his lightsaber as he did. The mole mines were designed to race toward their target just below the surface of the ground, and then shoot up into the air, exploding at roughly a meter high, sending out a ring of horizontal shrapnel along with a crown of intense heat and flame. They were deadly and cruel. Most people never even had a chance to recognize they were being attacked before they were killed. Two of the mole mines popped out of the ground. Dark gray cylinders with grinding gear-filled mouths at one end. The means by which they yanked themselves through the soil. As Bell reached the top of his leap, he seized both with the force and flung them as far as he could into the air. A reflexive move he hoped would do the job. The remaining two mines had not left the dirt. Their primitive brains unsure where their target had gone now that he was no longer standing. A huge sound, a woof, then a second, a moment later, as both airborne mines exploded. Bell felt a wash of heat, intense but survivable. He fell, seeing the end point of one of the mole mine trails just below him, and aiming himself toward it as best he could. Bell landed, stabbing his lightsaber into the ground, inhaling one of the two remaining mines. The final explosive shot up into the air, and he reacted without thought. The force as his guide, slicing it in half before it reached the apex of its enemy. The two halves of the mole mine, neatly bisected, fell to the ground. And Bell looked up. He saw that Loden and Porter were dealing with their own attacks, each in their own way. Loden was using the force to yank the mines out of the ground before they got anywhere near him sending them flying high into the air to explode harmlessly over the rust flats. Porter was in a low crouch, his lightsaber out and lit. A bright blue blade he held in a reverse grip. He was simply slicing the mines in half as they popped out of the ground, one after another. The maneuver Bell had performed just once and didn't even truly understand how he'd managed. Porter was doing it again and again. The expression on his face never changed. His blade flashed, and the metal fell, and he remained untouched. Both Bell and Loden were transfixed. They were both good swordsmen, and Loden had some claim to be great. But this 
was like nothing they had ever seen. Not at the Jedi Temple. Not from Master Yoda or Xavier Tep or even old Arkoff. Bell couldn't imagine what it would be like to face Porter Engel in combat. The display of skill was beautiful, and they could not stop watching. And so they did not see the mole mine that burrowed its way beneath the vanguard, then shot up and destroyed itself in a paroxysm of joyful self-immolation. The explosion ripped the transport in half and shoved Bell and Loden to the ground in an impact they were barely able to cushion with the force. You all right? Came Indira's urgent voice. Loden! Porter! Answer me! What the hell is going on down there? Everything just started blowing up! Loden groaned and rolled onto his back. He pulled his comrade from his belt. We're okay, Indira, he said. Just a few surprises the Nihil left for us. More mines. Seems to be over now. But we lost the vanguard. If they left mines, it means they thought they might be followed. Means they got away. I think so, too, Porter said, walking up, his lightsaber back in its holster. My guess is they have a ship parked somewhere in one of the transit zones. The magnetic fields are rough around here, so they couldn't just land by the house and take the family. They had to land, then speed her in. Then the family killed their speeder, so they stole the steelies and set out to ride back to their ship. How are we supposed to catch them now? Bell asked, pushing himself up off the ground. <laughs> the V-wheel's done. Still got three steelies left. Porter said. I can settle them up, and I can use the Force to convince them to work with us, to give us everything they've got to save their people. If we hurry, we can catch these monsters before they take the family off-world. Do it, Loden said, then lifted his comm link again. Indira, we're going after the Nihil. There are beasts here we can ride. You head back to the outpost and get a vector. We might need it to follow them off the planet. Got it, Indira said. May the Force be with you. Loden replaced his comm link in his belt and walked toward the burning remains of their vanguard. The vehicle's two halves were now separated by several meters. Shards of debris scattered amid the open space between them. He stopped near what was once the driver's compartment. What are you doing? Bell asked. The internal systems on the vanguard are hardened against attack. In theory, you could blast a thousand holes in one, and the wheels will keep turning. Now, this poor V-wheel isn't going anywhere ever again, but maybe it can still make itself useful. He lifted his hand, and a long metal panel on the front of the left vanguard began to vibrate, lifting away slightly from the rest of the machine. Help me, other one. He said. These things on tights. Bell lifted his own hand, and the blackened metal panel tore free, flying backward and skittering across the ground. Loden bent and peered into the vanguard's inner workings. Hmm, he said. Looks intact. He gestured with his hand, closing it into a fist and Bell heard the sound of metal bending and snapping from inside the engine compartment. 
little spangs as of thin clasps being stressed beyond endurance. Loden reached into the machine and withdrew a metal tube about a meter and a half in length, with a sort of wire basket on one end containing a compact power module. Wires stretched and pulled as he lifted the assembly out, electronics connected to a flat metal panel dangling below the tube as he freed it from the vanguard. Bell watched as his master quickly wove the wires into a sort of strap and slung the whole thing over a shoulder. The tube's ends protruded beyond his back at shoulder and hip. <clears throat> Loden said. <laughs> Heavy. He looked at Bell and noticed his Padawan's questioning look. Just in case, Loden said, and grinned. Porter returned from the corral, holding the reins of the three silver-sided steelies, now saddled and ready. Connect with your mount as best as you can. These are good beasts, but we'll be pushing them hard. You'll need to explain to them how important all of this is. Bell wasn't sure what that meant exactly, but he assumed he'd either figure it out or be thrown from the steely and left behind. He put his foot in a stirrup and pulled himself atop his mount, not as smoothly as he might have liked, but the important thing was that he was aboard. The steely withered, sidestepping and shaking its head. It stamped a hoof, marking its irritation at having an obviously inexperienced rider, and sparks flew from where the metal hit stone. Which direction, Bill? Loden said, already in his own saddle. Bell reached out, looking for fear, pain, anger, and found it. Not as far away as he might have thought, either. They had a chance. That way, he said, pointing. They went. Salvation Class, Republic Medical Frigate, Panacea. I'm uncomfortable with this, Master, Ariaga said. We were just doing our job. He spoke in Shriwook, and as far as he knew, the only person within a parsec who could understand him was his master, the Jedi Knight Nib Asik, standing at his side. But he didn't want anyone to think he was complaining, or didn't want to be there. This was a solemn occasion. They were both in their temple attire to mark the moment. For him, that was just a sleeveless layered tabard with an azure sash, but Nib was in the full white and gold, her long gray hair tucked up in a bun, her boots and her lightsaber hilt both polished to a highly reflective shine. This isn't for us, Padawan, Nib said. We're here to give these people some closure, some peace. They wanted to meet us. Come on, it won't be so bad. The two Jedi were standing near the entrance to a high-ceilinged cathedral-like chamber. The huge room took up most of the middle portion of the Panacea. A gigantic medical aid ship, one of Chancellor So's earliest great works. In the years since its completion, the vessel had been sent to various conflict zones, disaster sites, and areas affected by outbreaks of contagion tangible evidence of the Republic's commitment to its citizens, especially the weakest. 
most recently, So had dispatched the vessel to the Hetzal system to collect and treat survivors of the Legacy Run disaster. The Panacea's huge central chamber, called the View Deck, was a transparent steel dome. Under ordinary circumstances, the dome revealed whatever happened to be outside the ship, but in deference to most of the room's occupants, a different choice had been made. Instead of the dark void of space, circuitry within the dome had rendered its surface opaque, with subtle green and blue tones moving through it, and warm yellow light shining down from above. Calm sounds played softly in the distance, burbling water, wind through leaves. The ship's medical psychologists had subtly recreated the colors, sounds, and feel of a planet very like the one the settlers aboard the Legacy Run had hoped to make their new home. That was, if their transport ship hadn't been destroyed in an instant of terror and flame, throwing them out of hyperspace and into a disaster that was not yet over. Buriaga was tracking the emergencies closely, because he had been present at the start of the disaster and played a fairly central role in its resolution. He felt connected to the whole terrible situation on a deep level. He wanted to stay involved and help however he could until the whole slow tragedy finally came to an end. Among other efforts, he read the daily report issued by the Chancellor's office on the status of the crisis. Recently, it was focused on burgeoning unrest as the effects of the ever-growing hyperspace blockade were felt. But it discussed the emergences, too. Current count, 21. And one of those last had caused the destruction of an orbital shipping facility over Dantooine that was coordinating a massive aid shipment to the increasingly beleaguered systems of the Outer Rim territories. Nib Asik walked out toward the center of the view deck, where thirty or so people were gathered, chatting among themselves in low voices. The Panacea's staff had set out refreshments, and most of the people had drinks in their hands. It was like a party, but it wasn't. These were the first survivors of the Legacy Run to be rescued, the very ones whose fear Buriaga had detected just before he, Nib, Teyami, and Mikhail Supmani nearly destroyed their passenger module. The survivors had gathered here to meet their Jedi and Republic saviors. It was both an attempt at closure and a chance for them to express their gratitude in person. It all made Buriaga uncomfortable. He didn't thank Jedi for being Jedi. Joss and Pekka Adrian, the married longbeam pilots, didn't seem to have any such qualms. They looked completely at ease, already talking to some of the Legacy Run passengers. Uriaga didn't have an issue with that, of course. They'd been an integral part of the rescue, and he was glad they were here. If for nothing else than to take some of the social load away from him. Buriaga surveyed the Legacy Run survivors. Through the Force, he could sense the strange tension in these people. An odd mix of regret, shame, exultation, and relief. Survivor's guilt, he supposed. Nib greeted a young couple warmly, embracing them one after the other. As she released the second woman, she flickered her fingers toward Buriaga, and a signal that he knew meant advance into battle, one of their private master apprentice signals. 
Briaga sighed and stepped forward, adjusting his sash, the polished weight of his lightsaber hilt, a comfort in its holster at his side. It shone just as brightly as Nib's, though his was fashioned from the amber of a white rosher tree from the Wookiee homeworld of Kashyyyk, with a broad crosspiece in Electrum. Not that he expected to use his weapon in this place, but advance into battle felt pretty accurate. His master knew how much he hated gatherings like this. None of these people would be able to understand him. Sometimes that was good, because often people assumed people who didn't speak weren't listening. Useful when he was trying to gather intelligence. But this wasn't actually a battle, and he wasn't in enemy territory. It was just a strange sort of social event, and he couldn't imagine he'd learn much no matter how many conversations he overheard. That said, he knew Avar Chris had asked Nib to gently inquire as to the experiences of the legacy-run survivors, to see if any details about the disaster might manifest. Master Chris and her partner, Elzar Mann, were looking for clues about what had happened. She thought some of the survivors could have repressed memories that might emerge with a bit of time and distance from the original event. But seeking that information was his master's job, not his. He couldn't see how he could ask people to tell him their stories under the circumstances. None of them could understand a word he said. Maybe if the Panacea had a translator droid aboard, but no just a few therapy droids, with their wide-eyed faces and serene way of moving, and some pill droids floating around. It was a medical ship, after all. Mariaga walked up to the three people chatting quietly among themselves, a Mimbanese couple and a human female. They seemed washed out, reduced. Even the scarlet skin and huge blue pupilless eyes of the Mimbanese seemed pale. He understood that. They had all spent what must have seemed like an eternity tumbling through space in that cargo compartment, certain they were going to die at any moment. Buryaga held up a hand in greeting. Mm, hello, he said in Shriwook, expecting and receiving a very familiar set of blank looks in response. Master Jedi, the Mimbanese male replied in basic. It's an honor to meet you. We're all so grateful for everything you did. Uh, of course, sir, Buryaga replied. No need to thank us. Uh, life is precious, and we are all the Republic. More blank looks. He suppressed a sigh. Hey, Burry! He heard a voice say and looked over. It was Joss Adrian with his wife, Pika. Both had drinks in their hands and seemed utterly relaxed. He didn't know how they did it. Maybe it was the drinks. The two pilots walked up to the little group. You guys might not notice, Joss said, but this is Buriaga. He's the reason you're all alive. <laughs> uh, dear, perhaps there's a better way to phrase that, Pika said. She wasn't tiny for a human, but next to her husband, she appeared so. Joss Adrian looked like a tree trunk with a head on top. But it's true, Joss said. 
We were getting ready to blast you guys into vapor. I mean, we didn't know you were aboard. We thought you were just another fragment and wanted to make sure you didn't smash into anything. But then, Buriaga here got on the comm and started yelling up a storm. <laughs> he sensed you in there and stopped us from firing just in time. <laughs> he grinned. But it was close. I mean, close. One more second and... Oh, oh. Pika hit him in the arm. Hard. Ouch! Joss said. Come on, darling, she said, leading him away. The three survivors were staring at Buriaga. He felt hot and wanted to start panting. He knew some people saw that as a threatening move. But he was a Wookiee, and of course his teeth were sharp, and... Is that true, what he said? The Vimbanese woman said. Was it really that close a thing? He nodded and their faces went very thoughtful. And Buriaga felt very embarrassed. They were treating him like he was some sort of... He decided to take the opportunity to escape and headed for the refreshment tables. He was starving, which wasn't unusual. His fur was light in color, mostly golden, with streaks here and there of the darker mahogany. He was in his prime growing years, he ate every chance he got. The refreshment tables were full. The Panacea's droids had made sure of that. But a glance told him it was all cheeses, breads, fruit, fresh-cut vegetables, spreads and dips, and sweets. Not a bit of meat. Wookiees could eat almost anything, but at that moment, Buriaga felt he needed fortification beyond what mere keratins and pip fruit could provide. Still, food was food. He took what was offered, filling a plate and beginning to graze. If nothing else, a full mouth might mean no one would engage him in conversation. Munching away on a bright green fruit he'd never had before, actually quite good. Buriaga cast his eyes across the room. This strange reception held amid a sort of illusory meadow floating in the middle of deep space. Little knots of people. Nibasik in animated conversation with a family. Joss in the middle of a story to another group who were smiling. Pika holding a woman's hand, listening earnestly to whatever she said. Buriaga spared a thought for the two other Jedi who'd been involved with rescuing these people. Masters Teyami and Sutmani. How had they managed to escape this assignment? His mood souring. He ate the core of the fruit, seeds and all, crunching it into nothing and swallowing. He turned back to the plates of food, thinking he might try one of the cheeses next, when someone caught his eye. There, off to the side, standing at the very edge of the white floor, staring out at the swirls of blue and green on the viewdeck's dome, a human boy, red-haired, speaking to no one. One of the therapy droids stood not far away, its broad, cheerful face slowly cycling through a range of warm, pleasant pastels as it spoke to the child. Buriaga wasn't always expert at estimating ages of other species, but he thought the boy was ten years along, maybe a little older. He wasn't answering the therapy droid, despite the best efforts of the helpful little machine. 
just staring, thinking whatever thoughts occupied his mind. Ariaga set his plate down and walked in that direction, reaching out with the force as he did. He sensed an immense sadness coming from the boy, mixed with guilt. Guilt for something monstrous and immense, nothing someone of his age should ever have any reason to feel. He walked up to the boy. The child's eyes were hollow, just pits in his face. <laughs> I'm Buriaga, he said, touching his chest, even though he knew the boy couldn't understand. He pointed at the child. What's your name? <laughs> the gestures were universal enough, obvious, and the boy smiled sadly. Search, he said. Sir Jukarian. Buriaga gestured over toward the other survivors, a questioning expression on his face. Serge looked over a long, slow, sad look that did not seem to end, as if he was searching for something among the survivors he knew was not there. Someone more like. He shook his head. Buriaga reached out and folded the boy up in an embrace. He couldn't understand why anyone hadn't already done this. When someone was hurting, you did what you could to heal them. When someone was lost, you found them. With the Force, he did what he could to soothe poor Surge. He couldn't take away his bad feelings, but he could take some of the weight, make them a bit easier for the boy to bear. Surge held himself rigid, but slowly began to relax setting down some part of whatever he was carrying. Buriaga felt him begin to shudder in his arms, and realized the boy was crying. <laughs> I did it, Serge said, his voice muffled against Buriaga's chest. It's all my fault. I was slicing into the bridge systems because Captain Cassett thought she was so smart. I wanted to show her she didn't know as much as she thought. I was going to put a hollow fit on the bridge screens, but right when I got in, I saw... I saw... And then the ship ripped apart. And I was in compartment 8, but my mom and dad were in compartment 12. And they still haven't found it. And I think... He collapsed into sobs. Buriaga held him for what seemed like a long time. The boy wasn't quite done talking, though. And Buriaga listened to everything the child had to say. Eventually, when Serge seemed to be talked out, he released him and stepped back. <sighs> you, he said, tapping the boy gently on the forehead, did nothing wrong. He touched his fingertips together, then pulled them apart, gently, miming an explosion. Uriaga shook his head gently, and gave Serge a smile. You did nothing wrong, he said again. The boy surely could not speak Shreewok, but he could understand, and he did. Uriaga steered Serge over to Nebasik who was chatting with another group of survivors. 
You need to hear this, Master, he said. She looked at him, curious. This is Serge Ukarian, Uriaga said, patting the boy on the shoulder, who suddenly seemed very nervous indeed, which made sense. Being the focus of Jedi attention could be intimidating. He fears he lost his family in the disaster. And we should do everything we can for him. Nebasik nodded. Of course, she said. Everything we can. Her tone was respectful, but also a little curious. His master didn't understand why he had brought this child to her. After all, nearly everyone on the view deck had a sad story to tell. Surge <laughs> accessed the bridge systems on the legacy run just before the accident, Uriaga said. He was playing a prank. Nothing serious. But as part of that, he sliced into its screens. And when he did, he got a glimpse of whatever it was they ran into out there that caused the ship to disintegrate. That's fascinating, Nib said, purposely avoiding looking at Surge so as not to spook him. She could sense his state as well as Buriaga could. Well, perhaps not as easily as he could. Emotions were his particular strength in the Force. But the boy's tension and confusion blazed out like a burning tree at night. A youngling on his first day at the temple would be able to sense Surge's turmoil. After a moment's thought, she turned to the boy, going down on one knee, putting herself at his level. Buriaga tells me you're very brave she said. Serge didn't answer. He also tells me you saw something when you sliced into the Legacy Run systems, just before the disaster began. We're trying to do everything we can to stop the emergencies and prevent something like this from ever happening again. I know it has to be a painful memory, but can you tell me what you saw, Serge? Can you explain it to me? Surge looked at the Jedi, his eyes gone hollow and distant again. Lightning, he said. It looked like three strikes of lightning. Elfrona. They're going to be all right, Erica said, looking her children in the eye as she said it. First little bee, then Ron. Ron was older just a few years from being ready to go off on his own. At that moment, they both just looked like babies, terrified and desperate for reassurance from their parents. The Nihil with them in the cart snorted. <laughs> yeah, she said. Just fine. She wore a mask like the others, but Erica knew she was Trandoshan from the look of her arms. Long in comparison to the torso, Gray pebbled skin, gleaming in the sun, ending in hooked white claws. A single line of jagged blue paint bisected her mask from forehead to chin. She held a rifle and had a holstered blaster, and the galaxy only knew what other weapons. Erica and her family weren't going to overpower this woman, even if all four of them managed to free themselves from the plasticuffs pinning their arms behind their backs. They were two miners and their kids, and Otto was barely conscious. 
He'd taken a nasty punch to the head when the Nihil finally pulled them out of their house. No, they weren't going to be all right. But you didn't say that to your kids. Just stay, Breeze, Erica said. They were racing along a dirt track that curved between two sets of hills. Iron on the left, magnetite on the right. The field generated by the two, part of the reason ships couldn't fly through this part of Alfrona, and the reason they weren't already in the Nihil starship headed off-world. With their speeder gone, the Nihil had decided to add livestock rustling to their list of crimes and stolen five of the Blythe's herd of Steelies to make their getaway. The kidnappers had harnessed two of the creatures to pull the repulsor cart in which the family was currently riding. Another three kept pace alongside. One Nihil per mount. They were inexpert riders, Erica noted with contempt, slumping in the saddles, holding their weight all wrong. They kept digging in their heels and slapping the creature's haunches in an effort to coax out more speed, not realizing that if they would just sit on them properly, the Steelies would move twice as fast. Not that Erica intended to tell them that. The slower their party moved, the better, because someone was coming after them. And the longer it took the Nihil to reach their ship, the better the odds the people behind them could catch up. Ron had noticed it first. He was sitting in the cart facing away from the direction they were moving, which meant he had a view of everything behind them. Her son had gently nudged her leg with his boot. Three short taps. Obviously a signal. She looked at him, mouthed a word. What? He didn't move, just cast his eyes to one side, looking past her, then back to her, then back to looking past her, toward the path they had traveled, then back to her. Ron nuzzled up to B and said loudly, Don't cry, B. This dumb lizard's not going to hurt you. Which had earned him a kick from their Trandoshan guard that he bore in silence. Her brave, brave son... It had also earned Erica a moment to turn her head and look behind them, where she saw what Ron had seen. Sparks in the distance. Not close, but not so far either. She had looked several times since, taking any opportunity for a quick glance, and the pursuers were getting closer, moment by moment. The sparks were identical to those kicked up by their own mounts every time a Steely's hoof struck against a metallic rock. Wild Steely herds running at night were like the natural wonders of Elfuna. They made a loud noise, too. A sharp, quick chick, which helped to disguise what had to be similar sounds emanating from the riders coming up behind them. Free, she thought. She couldn't quite make out any details, but it seemed like three riding side by side. No one seemed to have noticed besides the two of them. Their Trandoshan guard was keeping her eyes on her captives. And of course the Nihil weren't looking anywhere but dead ahead. They were hanging on for dear life, trying to stay in their saddles. She gave Ron a questioning look, and he responded with as much of a shrug as he could, using just his eyes. He didn't know who was on their trail either. And Erica knew he hadn't been able to raise help from Ogden's Hope. Maybe the settlement's security squad had found their spines and sent a team out to help. 
but they'd be in a speeder, not as mounted riders. It didn't make any sense, but it was a little bit of hope. And hope was in short supply at the moment. She risked another glance back, just to see if they were getting closer. And this time, her luck ran out. The guard saw her doing it, and looked too. She saw their pursuers immediately. Impossible to miss now. The sparks were shooting up to either side, like the people chasing them were riding along a road of flame. The Nihil stood in the cart and yelled out to the rest of her crew. Trouble! We got people coming up behind! Fast! Looks like three of them! And then, Otto, who as it turned out was not unconscious, but merely pretending to be, waiting for a moment like this, holding his own hope in reserve, clicked his tongue sharply against the roof of his mouth three times. It was a loud sound, and all five of the Steelies, well-trained and well-loved by her husband, knew the command and obeyed immediately. They stopped, their dura-alloy hooves locking into the ground with the organomagnetic field that allowed them to climb even the steepest of Elfrona's mountains. Here, the maneuver simply removed all velocity cold in one quick snapping movement. Velocity, but not momentum, not inertia. Three of the Nihil were thrown from their saddles, whipping forward at enormous speed. Their guard, too, who was in the worst possible position when the Steelies stopped, standing unbalanced in a fast-moving repulsor cart. She shot up and out, as if fired from her own rifle. A moment later, a thick, hard sound between a snap and a thud. The sound of something very hard breaking when it hits something even harder. Erica didn't see it happen, because she, along with the rest of her family, was pressed together against the front edge of the repulsor cart. A tangle of limbs and pressure and future bruises. Despite that, she was fairly sure she now knew what it sounded like when a Trandoshan skull split open against hard ironstone. And good bloody riddance. Is everyone all right? Erica said. I'm okay. He said. Tough little kid. Cured my hand, but it's nothing too bad, Ron said. I'm sorry I couldn't warn you, Otto said, pulling himself out of the tangle. It wouldn't have worked if I didn't surprise them. Now, try to do what I do. He rolled himself onto his back, then pulled his legs up close to his chest and extended his arms as far as they would go trying to get his cuffed wrist out and over his feet, so at least he'd be able to use his hands again. Erica got ready to repeat the maneuver herself. If they could use their hands, maybe they could find a way to get free, or at least to run. The butt of a rifle slammed down on Otto's head, and he slumped. His eyes went blank and dazed. He was alive, but Erica didn't know how much of him was left just then. Her husband wouldn't be cooking up any more surprises, but that much she was sure. The Nihil weren't gone. They had fallen. Some had fallen hard, but they were still there, and they still had guns. And now they were very angry. The one who hit her husband lifted his rifle for another crack, and she knew this one would most likely crack his skull for good if the first blow hadn't. Erica lunged forward 
covering his body with hers, trying to intercept the blow. No! She cried. The rifle hit her in the side, and she curled up against the pain, which was immediate and immense, but bitter her than Otto. Move, or you die too. The Nihil growled, its voice low and strange. Someone else outside the cart grabbed the attacker and pulled him back. Erica was struggling to breathe, but she could still hear. Don't kill any of them. Asaria's dead. She's dead. Asaria, Erica thought. What a lovely name. These stupid miners killed half of us already, Dent. Damn right, she heard Ron whisper. It's time for some payback. I said no. Everyone we kill, that's 25% of our tank. We're not worried about the people we lost. It's almost our share. But we lost a spear, too. And that means we're in the red on this. We need every credit we can get. Don't kill any of them. You're just a strike. I'm the cloud. You do what I say. A long moment of silence. And Erica knew that the lives of her husband, and maybe the rest of her family, were dependent on how much respect this strike had for his cloud. Whatever that meant. Fine. The first Nihil spat, and she heard him walking away. Erica exhaled slowly. Otto, she said. No answer. She decided she would just believe he was still alive. Hope was a choice. And not unwarranted either. In the distance, she could hear a sound. Hoofbeats. Their pursuers were catching up. We need to kill whoever's coming after us. The Nihil's leader said to the rest of her crew. A cloud, she had called herself. Ega, well, get up in the hills on either side. Find spots where you have a good view of the canyon. Mac, Buggo, and I will keep going for the ship. We'll take the family with us, so they'll have to come this way. Take them out! Erica listened as these arrangements were put into play. And with a jerk, the cart began moving again, rapidly picking up speed. But now there was no guard, and she was able to complete the maneuver her husband had shown her, getting her hands in front of her as opposed to stuck behind her back. First, she felt Otto's pulse, steady and strong. He was unconscious, but maybe that was all. Her husband attended to. Erica turned to her children. She touched Bee's face and kissed her, and then took Ron's hands in hers. You're both being so strong, so brave. We're so proud of you. Is Dad all right? Bee asked. He will be. Don't worry about your father. Just stay calm. And be ready to do whatever I ask you to do when the time comes. For now, try to get your hands out in front of you, like I did. You're a little wiggly worm. You can do it. I know you can. You too, Ron. She watched as both her children contorted themselves as she had requested. Now what? She thought. Erica had an unconscious husband and two children to save somehow, and... She remembered their pursuers. Help, maybe, and on its way. 
she reached up to grasp the edge of the cart and pulled herself up, looking back. Surely they had to be close. And they were. The delay from Otto's trick with the Steelies had done its job. They couldn't be more than 500 meters back. She could see them now. Three figures, riding well, riding fast. These were experienced wranglers, nothing like their captors. Erica wanted to yell out, to tell them they were riding into a trap. But she didn't think they could hear her, and didn't want to do anything that would cause the Nihil to decide a 75% profit margin would be fine after all. Then, something happened. Three lines of light blossomed from the riders coming up fast behind them. One gold, one blue, one green. And Erica realized what was happening. Who these people were. By the light, she breathed. They're Jedi. Oh my goodness, was a side of wow. Did we just experience that? It's like we strapped ourselves to a meteor and are now hurling through the High Republic at light speed. That was off the chart electrifying, and I'm fired up as a Starship engine on full throttle. And with each new installment, this story introduces us to even more captivating emotions. I can't wait to find out what happens next. But first, we gotta get to the quote of this episode. And this tantalizing quote comes to us from Alan Rufus. And he said, Our inner strength is our outer foundation. Now this one is pretty easy to understand, but I'm still going to break it down. Imagine you're building a house. Now before you even think of the walls and roof, you need a strong foundation, right? That's the part that's underground, holding up the whole house. If it is weak, the whole house can fall apart. Now think of this foundation as your inner strength. This isn't about how many push-ups you can do or how heavy a weight you can lift. It's about the strength inside of you, like being brave, staying hopeful when things get tough, or being kind to others even when you are having a bad day. How can you use this in real life? Because your inner strength is super important. Let's say you got a new job interview, or you're taking a test, or maybe you're trying to fix something that is broken. It might be scary or hard, but your inner strength is that foundation. It's what keeps you steady and strong. You stay calm and you do your best. That's your inner strength working like a solid foundation. Everyone has an inner strength. It doesn't come from books. It's built by your experiences, your beliefs, and how you handle things. So whenever you face a challenge, remember your inner strength is like that foundation under that house. It holds you up and keeps you going. That's what this quote means. And that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed part eight of Light of the Jedi, and I can't wait to hear part nine with you in a few days. So until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>